Hi, and welcome to episode 42 of Oscar Podcast. I'm here once again with Craig Kennedy of livinginsinema.com and Ryan Adams and me, Sasha Stone from awardsdaily.com. And we have our special guest, my old friend, Michael Gray, with us to discuss the Oscar year 1989. And if you've if you've been reading Awards Daily, you know that this is a quite a pivotal year in Oscar history because uh, it, you know it's really marked by the um, absolute exclusion, except for two lame Oscar nominations for Spike Lee's "Do the Right Thing," which would have changed the course of cinema if he hadn't, at the same time as he was getting accolades for his film, been marginalized as an angry black man and and admittedly as michael will speak to part of that is was his problem for being very outspoken and arrogant and not yasa no sirring his way through the white world the way morgan freeman did and driving miss daisy the film that eventually won best picture so that's why we shouldn't say that being outspoken is being arrogant because there are lots of people who can be outspoken and not be considered arrogant but so by even by just saying that people i know that you're saying the perception of him was was that he was arrogant but i don't think there's anything wrong that he that he spoke out and spoke his mind and he's always been that way and that's who he is and he's he, he's actually been able to sell his brand the same way that the directors like john ford and hitchcock did by becoming a cele- by becoming a celebrity right and i agree with you i and i will read in a little while a passage from inside oscar about spike lee which by the way most of the chapter of inside oscar for this year is about do the right thing and and how um, how the press approached it, what they thought about it, how they dismissed it, some of them, and, and many of them believed it to be a really important piece of work and kind of what the cultural um, history was was at the time going on, revolving around Do the Right Thing and when it came out and what it led to and what people were talking about and what became of Spike Lee. Um, the... What we want to do a little bit is is talk, I think, just just a tiny bit about what's happening right now in, in the Oscar race, um, if you guys don't mind, before we dive into 1989. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to talk about how the butler, Lee Daniels, the butler, has now reached, um, has had two consecutive weekends, number one at the box office, which is pretty significant. I haven't really looked into the history of it, but I would think that a non-Tyler Perry movie written and directed by a black uh, director to take the number one spot for two weeks in a row is a pretty big deal. And I think what we have is our first really strong Best Picture contender with The Butler. It's generally a slow time of year, box office-wise. You know, all of the big summer blockbusters are sort of a memory and people are sort of exhausted and catching their breath. But you can't deny that it's become a thing. Uh, It's tapping into an audience that is not well served by movies in general, and they're responding and they're going to see it. And you see this almost every year. There seems like a movie that comes along like this that that fills, fills sort of a void. And it's frustrating that Hollywood doesn't read that message and continue to do movies like this. And it's really, I had forgotten what really good timing this was going to be, that the movie was released two weeks before um, the 50th anniversary of of um, Martin Luther King's speech in Washington. That was really yeah. Im- impeccable planning on, on as far as uh, the release dates and the marketing of the movie. It's really helped, I think, keep it in the consciousness um, in the dialogue. Yeah, and, and um, funnily enough, Martin Luther King plays is also featured prominently in both Driving Miss Daisy and uh, Do the Right Thing in different ways, which we can talk about when we get there. But just in regards to the butler, um, 
to watch, to spend the weekend having, you know, seen the butler hit number one two weeks in a row and to, to, to have watched Driving Miss Daisy and Do the Right Thing kind of back-to-back, it, you really have to, like, take your hat off to, to what Lee Daniels was able to say in, in, in that movie, I think, and, and the history that he that he exposes and in a way that is so different from both those other films. But, but in a weird sort of way, both those films all are also in the Butler, like the, the anger from do the right thing. And the, and the weird, like uncle Tom from, I mean, Morgan Freeman could be the Butler (laughs) in Mm -hmm. driving Miss Daisy. He is that character. Um, but one other movie I just really quickly want to mention here at the top of the podcast is that is, um, um, Descent, uh, Destin Cretton's new movie called Short Term, which is really, really worth seeing, and I think it has a spectacular lead performance by Brie Larson. It's one of the most affecting female performances I've seen in a really long time. It's it's absolutely stuck with me uh, since I saw it, and I I just wanted to say that I think it's a a screenplay contender and also best actress contender, and I do think that those are the two really big standouts right now. That's all I want. It hit me in the same way that... um Middle of Nowhere hit me at the same time last year when we saw Middle of Nowhere and this time last year. It's the same scale of movie, the same, same, um, the same um, as, as sort of scope, intimate scope and everything, and it has the same impact on me. Mm, yeah, yeah. So that's just our little Oscar update, and now we can dive into, the, into 1989. That's really interesting what you say about the, uh, the butler incorporating the two sides of... Um, of the civil rights of the two sides, two different viewpoints of the civil rights movement, which are really the Malcolm X side and the Martin Luther King side. And so it incorporates the Malcolm X aspect of do the right thing and the Martin Luther King side of the more, more integrational sort of attitude of, uh, of um, driving Miss Daisy. Right. Absolutely. I don't know. Do the right thing though. What surprised me about it, watching it again, is how much it straddles both worlds all by itself. It's very much about the tension between the two, mm-hmm. and it seems like the it's a tension that it was not resolved in Spike Lee's mind at the time that he made the film. There's so much that that there's 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 an ambivalence to it. There's a, a huge anger, but there's also a huge love, and there's a huge acknowledgement of the beauty of of a bunch of different kinds of people who all at that moment in the film kind of hate each other and there's a sadness to it and mm. it's it, it's the thing that makes it brilliant to me is that it's not it's not just the angry black man film that people dismiss it as it's much more all-encompassing than that it's much got a much bigger world view than i think it's been given credit for that's true because actually i had forgotten that the very last shot of, of do the right thing is a is a is martin luther king and malcolm x standing side by side right yeah yeah and there's there's two quotes he, he gives he gives the opening quote to martin luther king and and but malcolm x gets the last word and they're both approaching the same problem from two different ways but it's not telling you which way is the right way or the wrong way it's showing you to me it shows you what really happens what's interesting about the movie is that that came that movie scared the crap out of me i remember when i first saw it because it i didn't realize there was this huge anger and because you know i grew up in a neighborhood a suburban neighborhood where there was maybe five black people in my high school there wasn't a huge minority thing so there wasn't that minority tension so it was sort of eye-opening for me to see this anger and this tension and this was three years before the L.A. riots, so it's it's some, it was it was tapping into something that was very real, and that's the appalling thing to me about Driving Miss Daisy. Driving Miss Daisy is one of those films that 
would convince you that everything is fine and that we can all get along and be pals when oh. the reality of it is something completely different. It, you're, when you say the L.A. riots, you're talking about the Rodney King riots, right? Yeah, yeah 92. So in 92, right? And Michael That's... and I lived through that. We were here in L.A. Before we get to the violent scene, which is at the end, which I think is where the movie really becomes a powerful film. Like in, in the beginning, what you see if you watch, first if you watch Driving Miss Daisy and then if you watch um, Do the Right Thing, you will see such a, a major contrast in cinematic styles. I mean, they couldn't be more polar opposite films. Do the Right Thing opens with Rosie Perez dancing to Fight the Power. Um, and it, her dance is so amazing. It's so strong. It's so sexy. It's so powerful. It's so fierce. And she's, you know, she's doing boxing. She's doing dancing. And she is completely going for it. She's not doing a lap dance. She's not trying to turn on the audience. This is, you know, he's saying part of black culture is the strength of women. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and showing also the different facets by all the costume changes that she goes yeah. through, all the different facets of the black community that and, were, uh, were competing at the time. And his cinematic style. You're seeing an, a really talented, really visual director who is not afraid to use bright colors and odd-looking characters. Everything is in the extreme and do the right thing. And it, it is such a, sh- like a mind-blowing culture shock from Driving Miss Daisy. You almost feel like you're in a different decade watching a movie. Well, Driving Miss Daisy is just like every other... It has the same traditional style as every other Best Picture winner that's ever been. Um, do the Right Thing was so audacious. Nothing like that had probably ever been seen before and has never been seen since, really. No, I can't remember any movie that opens opens so strongly, that, that announces itself so boldly as Do the Right Thing did. As, as, a, as to say, here is a brand new bold voice. Uh, wake up and pay attention. Yeah, and the colors really strike you. And the colors really, to me, sort of underlie that what the film's about these contrasts he uses really sharp contrasting colors to show how sharply contrasted in bed they the cult different cultures were the black culture the white culture the asian culture all kind of mixed in and when he gets to that scene at the end it's really very ambiguous like you guys are saying but the the chain of events is They come in, they storm, Radio Rahim storms the pizza joint, and they wonder why aren't there any black heroes on that wall. And the audience starts to, I think, the audience, the Oscar voters mainly, they start to side with Danny Aiello. They think that, and even Michael and I talked about this, and Michael thought that that was bad, that they were, that who cares if there's no black faces on the guy's wall? He he can put whatever pictures he wants on there, movie stars. But if you dig a little bit deeper into what Spike Lee is saying, and if you know where he comes from, um, and what he said during that awards run for Do the Right Thing, is that... It is all about the white golden boy. You know, Hollywood and filmmaking and hero making and, and do the right thing. You hear that throughout. It's like all the, well, the, the basketball the, the, players. The wall and the, rock in the stars. pizzeria is symbolic of, of American media. Right. That's why that, that was the message. It's not as if we, anybody should be able to go into a place of business and tell the owner how to decorate their shop. It, but the, it, it was what it symbolized, though. What it symbolized. And anybody, and anybody who thought that it was only about the photographs and it was only about that one specific store is missing the point that Spike right. Lee was trying to make. And so then Danny Aiello tells him to turn off that music, turn off that music, turn off the that music. The jungle music. music. Jungle it music. insults the, by calling yeah. it jungle music. And so he takes his he, – he makes the first move. 
Danny Aiello, he smashes Radio Raheem's thing to smithereens. So Radio Raheem starts fighting him. And they fight, and they fight, and they fight, and it's a brutal fight, and everybody is telling them to stop. Black and white people, whoever happens to be standing there, is trying to get them to stop fighting. This is just a man and a man fighting. This is what it starts out as. Then the cops come, and the cops choke Radio Raheem to death. So Radio Raheem dies. Um, Then the riots break out. Then... um, Spike Lee's Mookie throws a um, something through the what does he throw through the a trash can garbage trash can, can. Yeah. through the pizzeria window they burn down the pizza joint they they riot they're angry and but the film isn't saying that's the right thing to do you know no, it's wrestling all. with that yeah. it, it, uh-huh. but but there is anger there that that a black man was just killed like that so carelessly it's, it's also it's, it's, it's disconcerting because the filmmaker is the one playing the character throwing the garbage can through the window so it's easy to say he's advocating violence but i think that i think that totally ignores how sympathetic he is for the most part to Danny Aiello's character he, because earlier in the, go ahead Craig i'm sorry he he allows he allows Aiello to make his case and a lot and a lot of his case makes a lot of sense but he also doesn't deny the rage that and the anger that the that the people in the neighborhood feel about that he he gives full voice to both sides and to me that's what elevates the film from beyond just a political statement it, because he's airing he's airing out all sides hello yeah, we deliver. Trust we deliver. All right. Where's that? One, two, three, you're going to pay now, you're going to pay on layaway. Yeah, we know where that How is. How much? Yeah, 30 years. You've been coming in here at least three times a day. What are you, a retard? It's a dollar fifty. Yo, stop. Put some cheese in that motherfucker, man. Extra cheese is two dollars. Two dollars? Yeah, two dollars. Hey, you can forget that shit. Yeah. brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Take it easy. Huh? And you, hey, don't stop me today. What? Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some sex. You looking for trouble? Are you a troublemaker? Is that what you are? You making trouble? Yeah, I'm a troublemaker. I'm making trouble. You're a real ball breaker. Who's coming in here looking for trouble, huh? Suppose I busted your head. How would you? Uh, Mookie, 
Look, you want to get your friend out of here? What, are you going to kick me out now? Are you, you going to kick me out? Huh? No, I'm not kicking you out. You're kicking yourself out. What? Look, we want some brothers up on the wall, you Let's know? Go. Malcolm X, Nelson Mandela, you know, you're Michael Jordan. Tomorrow. Come on, get, get him out, all right? I'm trying to get him out. Yeah, I'm paying for this. I know you paid for it. Let's go. Yeah, all right. All right. So you're kicking me out. Beat me in the head. and going to kick me out, right? Come on, let's yeah, go. okay. Bet. Yeah, all right. Let's yeah, go. look, I paid for my. Look, boycott signs. Let's go. Right? Yo, boycott signs. I got Yo, your boycott swing. Boycott signs. Yo, my pay... What you laughing at? Yo, I paid for my slice, man. Yo, man, I spent much money in there. What are you trying to do? What am I trying to do? What are you trying to do? Earlier in the movie, it's not the first time that, 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 that the pizzeria owner, the Daniello, had been asked to take, the, had been asked about the photographs. When bugging out, the, the character played by Giancarlo Esposito brought it up earlier in the film, and at that point, Mookie takes him outside and talks him out of it, talks him down from the, talks him out of being confrontational. So we know that he's trying to play. He, earlier in the movie, he proved that he was trying to calm the situation down. Yeah, and you have the the guy who stutters, the disabled guy. Um, bringing up Malcolm and Martin Luther King, and it's very specific because obviously Martin Luther King advocated no violence, and Malcolm X advocated violence. That same conflict is brought up in The Butler. Weirdly enough, it's it's not it's not addressed at all in Driving Miss Daisy. It, the only time it's even semi brought up is when Jessica Tandy's character is going to see Martin Luther King speak, and um, what's you know, and, and Morgan Freeman. You know, she says, oh, I was going to invite you, but I didn't think you'd want to go or something like that. And he says <laughs> things haven't changed. Yeah. So that is, that's the way white people at that time wanted to deal with race relations is to just say, you know, and then what they're doing with um, what they did with Driving Miss Daisy is what they did in The Help and what they did in The Blind Side. They tell it from a, a white perspective of the the magical negro is just here to help us through our problems and our guilt and aren't we nice to them but you know they'll never confront us or never you know and that's what mississippi burning had done last the year before it, it made uh, the white people the saviors it turned the white people into the saviors and the black people were nothing but victims and the people uh, who were in distress who needed who needed to be helped along right so you, it's a running theme for Oscar to approach a film that, that talks about a certain problem and to favor the one that ends up leaving you feeling good about the situation rather than scaring you. Right. And it really was a marked change, I think, because at the time that, um, at the, time that the Oscars you know, shut out, do the right thing, and I'll read you here in a minute the, the passage about that because it literally was a big deal for the Oscars. To me, this seems like sort of when they really, really started to lose touch with what was happening in the outside world. And the world was going on around them, and movies were being made around them, um, and they were still sticking to their idea of what an Oscar Best Picture is. And that wasn't always the case with them. I mean, uh, going back all the way to the 40s and 50s and 60s and 70s, they picked really good movies. And... But at this point, they're they're starting to slip into what feels comfortable. That they need filmmakers to make movies that they like and that they'll vote for. And that's why we're in a situation now where you have the Oscar movie, because it's a movie made for Oscar voters. Well, if you're winning a prize that's just made for you, I mean, how fair, how honorable can that really be? I mean, don't you want to win a prize for having made a really good movie? 
you know? Right. And I think part of it, too, was even though there have been really great um, Oscar films in the past that have been masterpieces, they weren't scary in the same way that Do the Right Thing is scary, the same way that Craig said that it, Craig, that it scared the shit out of you when you first saw it. It was a really scary time in America right then and a really scary time in New York City. There was a lot of really bizarre stuff going on, some really crazy stuff, and people were really, there was a lot of tension. And the movie announces, too, in the opening credits, that it's 1989. What other movies do that? It's telling you that this is now, this is happening now. It tells you right yeah. up front, this is happening now, this is what you have to deal with right now. Most movies that were masterpieces that won Oscars in the past are more detached from current reality. Yeah, and I just want to talk about, again, oh, Michael, did you want to say something? I heard you starting to speak. Well, I was saying that um, most filmmakers, when they're making films, they don't go into thinking that this film is going to be Oscar-worthy or anything. They just go into making a film. You know, with um, Do the Right Thing, um, when when Mookie threw the trash can into the window, I never understood his motivation in doing that. It, it, to me, it went totally against what he was in the beginning of the film up to that point. Like, I would imagine someone else doing it than seeing him do it. I never understood why he did that. It kind of, for me, it kind of like distracted me from the character that he was prior to that moment. I can I see think a lot. I think his character changed or his relationship with Sal changed a little bit when he saw Sal um, flirting with his sister. That freaked him out and he was not cool with that at all. I think and he, he, the filmmaker, was allowing himself to be culpable to a certain degree of, of racism too. You know, I was, oh no, I was just saying that we saw the movie last night and it's the first time I saw it in a long, long, long time. I had forgotten the film and I, I was telling Sasha, in my opinion, I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, I've always felt all the other characters in the film were powerful. Ozzie Davis' character as the, as the mayor and Ruby Dee and um, Danny Aiello and all the other characters in the film were great, powerful um they gave great, powerful statements, and their, their performances were great. But I've always felt Spike Lee was sort of the weak link. I didn't see, I couldn't get any emotion from him. To me, he was very bland. I, I, I just didn't think of him as being very powerful while he was surrounded by powerful actors. Then you have him in the scenes that he was in. To me, I always felt his character as being a little weak. Well, that's what that's why for me, when he finally does snap at the end, that's why it works for me. Because even though he is sort of, he goes along and, 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 and plays along with, with what is, is easiest for him throughout the movie. He just um, wants to get paid. He, yeah, and finally, at some point, every person and, every, and people in character and every character is going to get up where you just can't take it anymore. And I think that's what happened to him when he finally snapped at the end of the movie, and because he finally saw something that he just he could no longer just stand back and witness and observe things and tolerate it. He had to finally do something um, in not in, in direct retaliation. Because as, as Sasha has said, it's not as if he was unprovoked. Um, the pizzeria owner has destroyed the most important thing in Raheem's life. He's destroyed his 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 his, his the possession that means the most to him is radio. And so why shouldn't, if, if a white person can destroy a black person's property, then why can't a black person destroy a white person's property? But all of it was, okay, the pizza owner, he didn't really start the whole thing. You know, it wasn't, I mean, if I, if it were my business and someone came into my business in that same, in that same way, maybe I would have done the same thing too. 
mm-hmm. you know, because you're coming into someone else's establishment. Radio guy, he was disrespectful from the beginning. Comes in, blasting his music. Does anyone do that? I mean, coming to someone else's. Would you want someone coming into your house, playing the radio, their own personal property, blasting in your house, trying to, um, they're like invading your space? Would you like? That? I get annoyed even so? in public when people. I would. Yeah, I would be annoyed by it, and I would try to do whatever I could to make sure that they 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 were left, or I would call the cops. But I wouldn't take it upon myself to destroy that person's property. Yeah, and I don't even know that that the movie is saying it was right. I mean, I feel like no. he was wrestling with a, a, a frustrating situation, a frustrating a frustrated community that is being continually ignored by right. the media, by Hollywood, and I think that they. The, the the pizzeria serves that community, and it's so mm-hmm. weird, and 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 that's exactly what Spike Lee is saying, that the black community is being, and and I will add in the Hispanic community is being served, you know, a plate of white people <laughs> every day. That's and they're buying tickets to see white stories, and so why is that fair? And I think that he he was bringing it up to make the point that, you know, that that his community they were being ignored and. In a, and they weren't they weren't heroes on the wall, you know. The, the and it's not as if Sal was a part of the community. He drove in from someplace else. He had a business there, but he didn't live there. He didn't have he didn't live in the community. He only came into the community to take their money. He only came. He served them something that they that they that they enjoyed and that they came came willingly to to partake of to consume. But he was he was using them as his as his way of making a living he didn't live in the community he wasn't part of the community right. in the sense that he had to but he was, that he he was had serving that community but but more importantly i think spike lee was saying like this is wrong you know and, and spike lee is one of the fir- fir- first few very you know early voices in hollywood that he somehow never got the memo that he was supposed to yasa no sir his way through hollywood and he didn't and he spoke the truth and he spoke about the frustration of and the unfairness of the kind of stuff that we write about on our website which is 86 years of oscar history and only one black actress has ever won best actress and that's halle berry one in 86 years i mean do black people not exist i mean (laughs) do they not get jobs in hollywood can they not do they not give great performances and completely ignored and then the academy turned around and proved it anchovy pepperoni okay just hold on one second see daddy Mookie's fucking talking on the phone. People are trying to call in orders. He's making us lose business. Mookie! 20 minutes. How come niggas are so stupid? If you see a nigga kick his ass, fuck you and stay off the phone. Hey, Mookie, forget about it. Can I talk to you for a second? What? Tina, who's your favorite basketball player? Magic Johnson. Who's your favorite movie star? Eddie Murphy. Who's your favorite rock star? Prince. You're a Prince Ross. Bruce. Prince. Bruce. Pino, all you ever talk about is nigga this and nigga that. And all your favorite people are so-called niggas. It's different. Magic, Eddie, Prince. I'm not niggas. I mean, they're not black. I mean, let me explain myself. They're, they're not really black. I'm, I mean, they're black, but they're not really black. They're, they're more than black. It's... it's it's different. It's different? Yeah, to me, it's, it's different. You know, deep down inside, I think you wish you were black. Get the fuck out of here. Laugh if you want to. You know, your hair is kinkier than mine. What does that mean? 
And you know what they say about dark Italians? You know, I've been listening and reading. You've been reading now? I read. I've been reading about your leaders, Reverend Al, Mr. Dude, Sharp Tone, Jesse. Keep hope alive. That's fucked up. Keep hope alive. Hey, that's fucked. Don't talk about Jesse. And uh, even uh, the other guy, what's his name? Uh, Farrakhan. Farrakhan. Uh, Minister Farrakhan. All right, sorry. Minister Farrakhan. Anyway, Minister Farrakhan always talks about the so-called day when, when the black man will rise. We will one day, what does he say? We will one day rule the earth as we did in, in our glorious past. Yeah, that's right. What past are you talking about? What, what did I miss? We started civilization. Man, keep dreaming, man. Then you woke up. Pino, fuck you, fuck your fucking pizza, and fuck Frank Sinatra. Yeah? Well, fuck you too, and fuck Michael Jackson. Dago Wap, Ganey, Garlic Bread, Pizza Slinging, Spaghetti Bending, Vic Damone, Perry Como, Luciano Pavarotti, Solo Meal, Non Singer, Motherfucker. You gold teeth, gold chain wearing, fried chicken and biscuit eating, monkey ate, baboon, big die, fast running, high jumping, spear chucking, 360 degree basketball dunking, titsoon, spade, mulling yarn. Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty-eyed, mean old speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York, bullshit Reverend Sun Young Moon, some Olympic 88 Korean kickboxing sabadam bitch. You Goya bean eating 15 in a car, 30 in an apartment, pointy shoes, red wearing, menudo, meet a meet a Puerto Rican cocksucker. Yeah, you. Yes, chip. I got good price for you. Now catch it. How I'm doing? Chocolate, egg, cream drinking, bagel and deluxe, banana for this Jew asshole. Yo! Hold up! Time out! Time out! Y'all take a chill. You need to cool that shit out. And that's the double truth, Ruth. And now let me read you guys this this little passage from the book Inside Oscar by Damian Bone and Mason Wiley, because I think you'll find it really interesting, although you've probably discovered some of this in your research, but it's a little bit long, so bear with me. While moviegoers spent their money on summer escapist fare like Indiana Jones and Last Crusade and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, journalists were expending news ink on the $6 million film Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. The portrait of the Bedford-Stuy neighborhood that erupts into racial violence after a young black man is killed by cops first created debate at its premiere at the Cannes Film Festival. Jane Fonda, the glittery presenter of the top award, the Palme d'Or, announced that the winner was not Spike Lee, but 26-year-old writer-director Steven Soderbergh for his film debut, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which we'll get to in just a minute. Um, Lee complained, there, quote, There are always looking for a golden white boy. The buzz around the festival was that jury president, German director Wim Wenders, lobbied against honoring Do the Right Thing because its protagonist, played by Lee himself, wasn't heroic. Hearing this, Lee pointed to the lead character in Soderbergh's film and bellowed, What's heroic about a fucking pervert who interviews women about sex lives on TV? (laughs) When a reporter from USA Today asked why there were no depiction of drug use in his film, Lee retorted, You don't ask those questions about Rain Man and Working Girl. On a plane from Nice to Paris, a member of the Cannes jury, Sally Field, leaned over a row of seats, took the director's hand and said, I'm so sorry I fought for your movie till the end and I'd do it again. Awaiting Lee in the USA was a neoconservative columnist for New York Magazine, Joe Klein, who took it upon himself to fan the fires of racial fears by writing, Spike Lee's reckless new movie opens June 30th in not too many theaters, one hopes. 
While he expected white filmgoers to have civilized discussions on the irresponsible film's message, Klein prophesied that black teenagers won't find it so hard. White people are your enemy. And as a result, he predicted race riots would break out at every venue. He foresaw that the movie might very well help defeat New York City mayoral candidate David Dinkins. Lee maintained that his urban drama's ambiguous attitude toward mob violence showed that there are no easy answers to racism and do the right thing simply mirrored society. It's an examination of race relations between different ethnic groups in the city, how in the last eight years the whole thing had been polarized by its owner, Mayor Ed Koch. And contrary to Klein's assessment, Lee believed that New Yorkers who saw the film would throw Koch out. Nightline and Oprah devoted shows to do the right thing. An emblematic of the controversy, Newsweek um, printed two reviews. David Anson wrote... You leave this movie stunned, challenged, and drained. It's the funkiest and most informed view of racism an American filmmaker has ever given us. But his colleague, Jack Kroll, was of a Klein bent, cautioning, this movie is dynamite under every seat. Other critics were lukewarm. Terrence Rafferty wrote in The New Yorker that the movie isn't likely to cause riots, but lamented that it winds up bullying the audience, shouting to us rather than speaking to us. Andrew Saris was disappointed when he saw it after all the hubbub and called it the most overrated film of the year. But looking at the movie on purely aesthetic terms, The Village Voices' Georgia Brown wrote, Do the Right Thing, the most beautiful American film of the year, looks like Godard crossed with Minnelli. Roger Ebert was another booster, picking it as the best film of the year to his annual tally. In, and then we skip forward to, um, well, I won't read you the rest, but basically what happens is... Um, well, here, let me finish this. When political columnist Bill Reed went to investigate Joe Klein's ominous premonition on opening day, he wrote, I sat in the middle aisle in my Bermuda shorts with pale legs prominent, and I thought, I sure hope he's wrong. Instead, when the movie was over, the audience, which Reed estimated to be 90% black, walked out quietly. The mood leaving the theater was pensive and sober. Joe Klein proved to be an inept prognosticator. Not a single disturbance broke out anywhere. Brent Staples of the New York Times zeroed in on the inherent racism of the doomsayers, whose fears suggest a view of black America, an enraged conspiratorial mass out beyond the perimeter, waiting for the drumbeat that will cue their rampage. The only thing even approaching an incident outside New York Zidfield Theater, um, where the Christians had, had picketed Last Temptation of Christ, this time it was the Jewish Defense League protesting Lee, Lee's use of the song fight the power by public enemy, which was seen as anti-Semitic. So there you go. Same thing happened after Trayvon Martin verdict, by the way. That's 2020 in 2013. How many years later? 20, 30 years after this? Same thing. That's what white people do. They fear They fear the black um, riots. And the fear of the black riots is what scared people so much about a movie like this being made in the first place. And it's what scared the Academy away from it. It was, high, it was extremely polarizing that year. And Newsweek, in fact, printed two opposing reviews, one in favor of it and one, and one slamming it. There was a, the, the, uh, the review in the Village Voice was scathing. I think it was called Do the Race Thing. And it just yeah. absolutely tore, tore Spike Lee apart, um, compared him to... So I can't, I'll find the quote in a minute. Um, but, I mean, it was just really rough. And yeah. so it was a it was an extremely scary movie to everyone uh, in Hollywood at the time. As, I, I as think he they, should have expected, you know, because it really is a very challenging, very difficult film to watch toward the end. And I was just this last viewing since I kind of knew it was coming and I, you know, was, wasn't really... I was just blown away by the beauty of the film. Like that love scene he has with Rosie Perez where he puts ice cubes on her body. I mean, my God, the cinematic mm-hmm. beauty of that scene. 
So the energy, the the vibrancy, the sensuousness of it, the the the, the even the anger and the joy and just the whole the whole human condition all wrapped into one. Yeah. Should say too when we talk about the Academy snubbing the movie, it wasn't as if there was a lot of support within the Academy for the movie too. Kim Basinger, I believe, at on Oscar night when she yeah. she took the opportunity to go off script when she was presenting an award to someone else to, to, to scold the Academy for, for ignoring Do the Right Thing. Right. She said, all these movies tell the truth, but there's only one movie missing from that list, and that's Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. And, and I actually have to say, I remember, this is one of the Oscars that I actually really remember watching and being horrified that Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing had been left off the list. And, and in its place, these very safe you know, really kind of bizarre nostalgia movies. Um, Interesting that you mentioned earlier that uh, that, that uh, Joe Klein guy, that he uh, predicted that it could destroy David Dinkins' chances. In fact, David Dinkins was reelected. Yeah, he because, won handily. Because, yeah, he was re- he, I mean, he was, he, was, he was elected. He defeated Mayor Koch for uh, mm-hmm. seeking re-election for his third term. Mayor Koch was a really personable guy, really charismatic, and he did a lot of good things. But he had rubbed a lot of people the wrong way over the course of the, the 12 years that he was in right. office. And I think and that one movie... thing he did in 1988 to really alienate the black community is Jesse Jackson was running for president that year and it was mayor Koch who brought up who, who tried to drag in the fact that, that he thought that jesse jackson was anti-semitic and it destroyed jesse jackson's chances at the at the democratic primary in new york and it destroyed his presidential uh, bid that year and right. so the black community in new york never got over it and that's why the following year that they elected david dinkins as black mayor of new york city Right. Interesting, isn't it? Um, yeah, it really is. And another thing, I'm sorry, I don't mean to just run on, but one other thing that we should talk, what, another thing, an aspect of what was going on in New York at the time, you know about the Central Park Five, right? Yeah, that's what I was going to bring up that, is say that yeah. wasn't that at that, that same time? It was. It was April, April 19th, 18, uh, 1989, and then two months later, on, on June 20th, Do the Right Thing opens. And at the time... Those those uh, four black guys and that one Hispanic guy were being railroaded for this rape, and so everyone at the time thought that they had raped this white jogger in Central Park, and right. they believed that for years. For but at wilding. the time, that, that summer in New York City, it was like fear of the black person. Right, and it wasn't true. They hadn't done it. They hadn't. No, it was not true. But that was the illusion and the perception that was on that was going on at the time. Yeah. There's a scene in the film where he where Spike is having I think he's having a, a conversation or an argument with Rosie Perez and they happen to be standing in front of a brick wall and on the brick wall is spray painted Tawana told the truth. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge thing in New York a little bit before the movie came out where Tawana Brawley was found and had been raped and abused and she blamed um, a bunch of white people for it, and it, it, the, it, the case went through the system, and they wound up determining that she was lying, and that she had just made it up to keep from having her stepfather beat her or something. I don't remember exactly what all the theories were, but it's telling that something like 80% of black people believed her story and 30% of white people believed her story. And that's the environment that this film was and made in. Al, Al Sharpton wow. was involved in that, right? That was, that was yep. when Al Sharpton really became um, part of a national dialogue and really became became prominent in the American media is when he defended the Tawana, Tawana Brawley story. The, right. It's amazing that a movie like that could have so many messages of, of, of current hot-button current events. At the end of Do the Right Thing, I think one of the... Isn't there a title at the end of the movie that says something like, The Election is Upon Us? The election is upon us, or the election is is, 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 is near. And they, it yeah. was a, like a call to... 
a call to action to get rid of Mayor Koch and 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 elect uh, David Dinkins. What but, movies but do that? Was, what what narrative films ever do that? I don't know. But there was some. There was a big message sent to Hollywood that year when they 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 elected. I mean, they voted for Driving Miss Daisy without a Best Director um, nod at all. It's it's entirely succeeds on Jessica Tandy's performance. Which is great. No denying it. She absolutely. If it was didn't. a movie about just an old white lady trying to maintain her dignity, it would have been a perfect movie. But they yeah. ruined it by ham-handedly trying to make it a racial thing. And it's not a good movie. I'm sorry to say. No. I'm sorry to report after all these years that watching Driving Miss Daisy, it's barely a TV movie. You can really tell that it was a stage play, that it was a stage play that's been opened up. You can really see that it could take place on a, on a completely empty stage with just two people sitting in an in a open car, open set of an, of an automobile. Something wrong back there, Miss Daisy? No. Something I done? No. Yes. Miss Daisy, I ain't done nothing. You had the car parked right in front of the front door of the temple like I was the Queen of Romania. Everybody saw you. Didn't I tell you to wait for me in the back? Well, yes, but I just trying to... Well, there's two other chauffeurs right behind me there. You made me look like a fool. A G.D. fool. Oh, Miss Daisy. Lord knows you ain't no fool. Slow down. Miriam and Beulah and them, I could see what they were thinking when we came out of services. What's that? But I was trying to pretend I was rich. Well, you is rich, Miss Daisy. No, I'm not. And nobody can say I put on airs. On Forsyth Street, we made many a meal off of grits and gravy. I've done without plenty of times, I can tell you. Miss Daisy, if I was to ever get my hands on what you got, shoot, I'd be shaking it around for everybody in the world to see. That's vulgar. Don't talk to me. Never going to stand somewhere. What? What was that? I heard that. Now, Miss Daisy, you needs a chauffeur. Lord knows I needs a job. So why don't we just leave it like that? Any of the other movies would have been a better choice. But let's just really quickly, we could talk about Do the Right Thing, honestly, for the whole podcast. But One one more thing I did find this quote from Stanley Crouch, who wrote for The Village Voice. He said that Do the Right Thing was a turd pushed in in white faces. And the last line of his review for The Village Voice said that um, uh, Spike Lee is John Wayne Gacy in a clown suit. So that's the, the vitriol that was that was coming out against in, in major media outlets against Do the Right Thing and against Spike Lee. So it was no wonder that the Academy was scared of it, especially when they had other easier, more um, more um, peaceful options to go with, like Do the Right, uh, but like Driving Miss Daisy and Glory and um, A Dry White Season. Right. I just wanted to sag into the other. There were some really major films that came out in 1989 that did not get Best Picture nominations. And I'm not saying that I don't think Dead Poets Society, Field of Dreams, My Left Foot, and Born on the Fourth of July are good films. They are good films. And I could see why Field of Dreams was nominated. I know that it had a major cultural impact at the time. Uh, and Kevin Costner was a big star. But but look at what else was nominated that year. Um Sex Lies and Video, not nominated that year. Sex Lies and Videotape, which launched Steven Soderbergh's career and is still one of the best films he's ever made. Crimes and Misdemeanors, one of Woody Allen's absolute best films, uh, did not get a Best Picture nomination. And When Harry Met Sally, 
um, is one of film that has really endured all these years. I mean, it's it's I think better than all five of the Best Picture nominees. And you know, I'm not saying he's the world's greatest director or anything, but that's a that was a pretty big big movie at the time. Enemy's Love Story was also a really really good film, and um, uh, Glory and the Fabulous Baker Boys with Michelle Pfeiffer. That's a really good one. And you know, we'll get to Michelle Pfeiffer versus Jessica Tandy in a little while, but let's just talk a little bit about uh, Sex Lies and Videotape. I watch you eat. You know, I watch you speak. Watch you move, and I, uh, I see somebody who is extremely aware of people looking at you. You know, my therapist. You're in therapy? Aren't you? No, I, no, I'm not. <laughs> I was a miserable failure in therapy. <laughs> so you don't believe in therapy? No, I, I, yeah, I... I believe in it for some people. I, I don't know. It was, you know, silly for me. I was confused going in. So I just, I formed my own theory that you should never take advice from someone that doesn't know you intimately. Oh, but I, I, I know my therapist intimately. You've had sex with your therapist? No. No, no. Oh, no, that's, I'm, I'm, that's what I meant. Someone, someone you, you've had sex with. Oh. I'm, I don't understand. I mean, how would you know? Um, I mean, you know, how, how Oh, I know, I, I, I wasn't always impotent. Oh. So let me see. You said um, you said that I should never take advice from someone that I haven't had sex with, right? Right? Right. And uh, we haven't had sex, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so I, 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 I guess from your own advice, I shouldn't take your advice. I wouldn't. You wouldn't. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, well, you said you mentioned uh, together when Harry met Sally and Sex Lies and Videotape. Throughout the '80s, we've been talking about the movies about yuppie angst and the and the, the movies about yuppies that have problems establishing and maintaining relationships. And both of those movies, Sex Lies and Videotape, and and uh, When Harry Met Sally, are like the culmination of the '80s examination of the yuppies trying to maintain relationships. I think, yeah, in in two different ways, in two different two opposite two to two different opposite results. I feel like um, there were... Uh, I forgot to also mention that the other movies that came out that year, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, totally bizarre Peter Greenaway movie. I don't think anybody knew quite what to do with that. Dead Calm, which launched the career of Nicole Kidman and is still my favorite performance of hers. Drugstore Cowboy, another great movie, and Heathers, which is also a fantastic film. Drugstore so. Cowboy, Gus Van Zandt. It was an amazing, yeah. incredible movie. One of my favorite. I think it's probably in my top three or four movies that year. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of uh, Tim Burton's Batman. And I think Tim Burton's Batman was really subversive 
in its depiction of, uh, of Gotham City as New York in the same way, in a, in a way that was entertaining that maybe slipped under the radar and yeah. that do the right thing wasn't able to slip under the radar and didn't intend to. But if you watch Batman, the guy who plays the mayor of Gotham City, he's a doppelganger for Mayor Koch. When I first saw the movie, and when I re-saw it this past week, I looked at it and I thought, is that Mayor Koch doing a cameo? They found an actor who looked exactly like Mayor Koch <laughs> to play the mayor of Gotham City. And oh. so Tim Burton is making, a, uh, is making a commentary about the corruption and the decay and the decadence and the filth and the, and the, the depravity, depravity, really, of New York City at the time. Yeah. Well, just as an aside, uh, I'm sorry to have to report that the Ben Affleck petition... <laughs> To get him to not play Batman, I think it's reached fifty thousand. <laughs> Have you wow. ever heard of anything like this happening ever? That's bizarre. So strange. So um, I can say that I'm a fan of the of the casting decision, but I also am willing to wait and see what happens because I never would have thought that a lot of the decisions that were made about, about all the Batman movies throughout the years would have been would have turned out as well as they did. So I'm going to have a wait and see attitude about it. Uh. Um, okay, so back to sex, lies, and videotape. I think at the time, this is this is why I noticed that the Oscars are really diverging onto their own weird path because none of the movies that they, I mean, sure they were popular films, but they didn't change the course of cinema the way I would say do the right thing, which should have changed it better. But um, sex, lies, and videotape really changed filmmaking. Steven Soderbergh had a major impact on filmmaking because he showed that you could make a movie that good with just a tiny, t- I think it was like a one million or something he made it for. Mm-hmm. Does it or something yeah. like that. Yeah, and it it I mean contrary to what Spike Lee says, I don't blame him for being annoyed. I would be annoyed too, but um he made a movie that good and then to just get ignored, but but um but but James Spader in Sex Lies and Videotape isn't just some weird sex pervert. He's he's a guy. I mean, yes, he's got his weird sexual things right he can't he can't have an orgasm in the presence of another woman or anybody and he lives in his apartment and he has just the one key <laughs> but mm-hmm. all the character four characters there are two sisters one sister is you know really sexually expressive and is having an affair with the one sister's husband and she andy mcdowell in a great role is married to peter gallagher who's who's just an asshole and he's james spader's friend john we are not talking about military secrets here they're just tapes he makes so he can sit around and get off and he doesn't have sex with any of them they just talk and they just sit around and talk I could almost understand it if he had sex with them. I mean, almost. Why doesn't he just buy some magazines or or some porno movies or or something? It doesn't work. He has to know the people. He has to be able to interact with them. Interact. Whatever that means. Did you have to masturbate in front of them? I felt like it. God damn, you and Anne make such a big deal out of it. Well, yeah, she is my sister. I do tell her almost everything. Why not? It's just something I'd prefer she didn't have to know about. She's a grown-up. She can handle it. And... And is just very... Hung up. It just wasn't a smart thing to do. Oh, yeah. Did you sign any sort of paper for him? Did he have a contract with you saying that... You wouldn't broadcast these things. No, sir. Well, you realize you have no recourse legal. <laughs> it's not funny. 
It's not funny, Cindy. These tapes could show up anywhere. They won't. I trust him. You trust him? That's funny. Yeah, I do. A hell of a lot more than I trust you. What do you mean? Just what I said. I'd trust him before I'd trust you. Hurts that you say that to me. Come on, John. You're fucking your wife's sister. You're a liar, but at least I know you're a liar. I know, I know. Second lowest form of human being. And the first. What are you talking about? Nothing. By definition, you're lying to Anne, too. Yeah, right, but I didn't take a vow in front of God and everyone to be faithful to Anne. No. I've changed my mind. I shouldn't have called. I'm here now. I need to do something. Would you like to help me straighten up? Is there one chair in this place that works? Well, why don't you go sit somewhere else? So the heroic side of James Spader is that he gets to know women in a different way than they're used to being, um, uh, they're used to being talked to or listened to or appreciated. And he makes these videotapes of them, you know, and he has them tell them him their intimate um, stories and that gets him off. It's sort of the early pre-internet, you know, like voyeur chat kind of thing. Um, he's a weird character, but they, they end up falling in love and, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what to say about it except that it was. I remember at the time that it was something really, really different, and people were like, "Wow, this is incredible." There's more honesty in his interactions with the women than in anybody, and, and definitely in, in Peter Gallagher's. And that's why he, even though you can write it off as being perversion, and it's obviously not a normal, healthy way to deal with women. It's much healthier than Peter Gallagher's way of dealing with women, and it's not surprising that he totally shakes up this little community of people for the better right and home video and home video video was still a relatively new thing it's probably only been on in most people's homes for maybe five or ten years and and home video cameras were probably the they were the the kind of pervy little dirty secret that a lot of people probably had at home and so just the title alone was probably provocative enough to make people want to go see what this was all about they probably weren't prepared for how intelligent it was going to be yeah I probably expected it to be a lot more tawdry and sleazy than it was. Right, right. And it, it has its moments, but, God, those are some great written characters, mm, you know. Amazing, yeah. the, the, especially Andy McDowell's character and um, uh, Laura San Giacomo, the way that they're written, the way that they act, how, you know, they're talking about things you've never really seen on the movies. And he's exhibiting his gift as a director, you know, keeping everything going the way he does, and also his gift with directing actors, you know, how good he is. Particularly women. Particularly women. He's really good at that. But one thing I wish he'd do more of is write, which he doesn't seem to be doing that. And you see his writing in Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and it's wonderful. Yeah, up until recently, that was one of the few of his own films that he'd written. He'd always, in between, had relied on, on mostly other people. I guess he he seems to be a guy who identi- who is, is has a knack for identifying his own talents and sticking to those things 
um, and maybe he just wasn't as comfortable with the writing as he was with the filming and the editing. Right. Um, it should be it should be pointed out too, on, as a side note, that um, that Sexualized and Videotape was a Miramax film, and as was um, My Left Foot, and both of those films sort of launched Harvey Weinstein into the realm of yeah. the uh, as the Oscar whisper, mm-hmm. for better yeah, or for worse. Because, and I, I think Sexualized and Videotape also premiered at something that was called the U.S. Film Festival that year, which became Sundance. It was the first Correct. the first film that really that really kind of launched Sundance too as a, as a testing ground for that type of movie. Right, and it was a big big launching of the in, indie industry, Sex Lies mm-hmm. Videotape, because it was one of the first that showed major crossover. Even though in the seventies they were really doing indie filmmaking a lot, but but in the more modern era it was kind of like. Sex Lies and Videotape made a lot of money, and it was really kind of notorious. People talked about it a lot. It was, you know, it was in proportion parody. to what it cost. Yeah, it, cost, right. it made like twenty times more, more than its budget. And so you would think that Hollywood, and they did. Hollywood saw something that they wanted to try to duplicate and replicate. And so what's starting going to start to happen is that the Oscars are going to start exclusively going that in that direction into the indie world because as big Hollywood becomes less and less reliable to delivering them the kind of movies that they like, they're going to turn to the indie, and it really takes hold in the mid-'90s. Mm-hmm. And that, that every studio after Sex, Lies, and Videotape went shopping at Sundance every year after that to see what they could find the same way that... see if they could find a gem like Harvey had found. Right. Everybody wanted that. They all wanted mm-hmm. to... But I still feel like when I look back at that year... Um, I still feel like Do the Right Thing to me was was the biggest standout. I mean, I just can't help but think that way because I feel like he was talking about stuff nobody really wanted to talk about at a time when um, black oppression was just, you know, status quo. Well, that's the thing. Nobody nobody wanted to talk about it then. In retrospect, we can see how monumental and how groundbreaking and what a milestone it was. But at the time, it was it was too much in everyone's face. It really people. A lot of white people probably did think it was a turd stuck in their face. As that guy for the Village Voice said, it was it was too much. It was too loud, too brash, too audacious, and then they didn't know what to make of it. Plus, it was way too controversial, and people were scared of it. And so we can see in retrospect how how fantastic it is. But at the time, it's almost, it's not too hard to understand why the Academy would go in so many other directions trying to find something that was just safer. Right, and and it really set the standard for this idea of, you know, black person rioting, you know, is kind Mm -hmm. of like... That is something that, that you know, is, is the worst. As we just saw with the Trayvon Martin thing, it's still just right on the surface like that. It's so funny because, you know, when Obama was reelected, the kind of disgusting, violent, hideous things that went on, like fires and, and shootings and um, racist tweets, you know, the, exhibiting the most... The, the, God, you should have seen some of the tweets that Ryan and I have had to field mm-hmm. after the Trayvon Martin thing, these assholes. And... You know, to get so upset about, you know, to be so scared, this, like, white fear of the rioting. God, the rioting. It's a fear, you know? it's a fear that never materializes, too. That's the funny thing about it. You, Everyone's always, you know, shivering and quaking in their boots that the, that, that when um, when the when Zimmerman goes set, is set free that there's going to be, um, they're going to burn everything down. And it never happens. It didn't right. happen after Do the Right Thing, after the screenings of Do the Right Thing. It didn't happen after Trove. It's just not... It's a it's a bizarre um, chicken shit kind of attitude. Yeah, and so one thing I think is is would go hand in hand with do the right thing is the butler because I think I feel like the butler 
you know, gives the kind of background from from the black civil rights perspective that takes us up to today, you know. I, I think it really does lay it out pretty well. And people say, oh, it's just educational, it's, you know, a history lesson or whatever. But it's history we need to learn if, if this is what's happening after Trayvon Martin. If the Trayvon Martin thing happened at all and then the backlash after it, you know, we're obviously still right in the middle of all of this. It's not right. gone away. As, as you said, if people can, if anybody can still blithely say, just obliviously say there's no racism in America anymore. And we hear that all the time. We see that, we see that on the site. We see that on Twitter. People saying, what are you talking about racism all the time? Racism is a thing of the past. If people, if there are people who still believe that, then there are people who need to be t- taught differently. Right, and just the two-term presidency of Obama should have should have made that abundantly clear. Mm. Um, but but it's just do the right thing to me. The thing that's sad about Spike Lee's career is how he was sort of marginalized as the angry black man, and he never really recovered from that because he's outspoken. Um, whereas Oliver Stone is incredibly outspoken; it didn't seem to hurt him. Mm-hmm. You know, Oliver Stone will say whatever the hell he pleases. In fact, in in white culture, the more outspoken they are, the better. In black culture, no, you're not. You're not yes and no, so you're not paying deference to to white. You know, like in The Blind Side, how the, I'll never forget how that black character has to have his head bowed the whole time. You know, mm-hmm. like like he, you know, like you would be around an angry dog. You have to keep your head down so you're not threatening. So he's not this big giant threatening black man. You know, and, and here's Spike Lee, Morgan like, Freeman, chuckling Negro. He's not only threatening <laughs> to to American culture and society, but he was threatening to the film industry because he spoke out directly against the film industry. I just ran across this. I'm thumbing through a book right now, and I found this quote Spike Lee wrote. Um, in, in a, a newspaper article, or it was in, in a, said in an interview in, in 1989, at the time when people are considering uh, whether or not to nominate, do the right thing. He, uh, Spike Lee says, "Universal is dicking me around. They won't budge from the 6.5 million dollar budget. Won't go a penny over it. It's ridiculous. White boys get real money, fuck up, lose millions of dollars, and still get chance after chance. Not so with us. You fuck up one time, and that's it." So he was talking like that about the film industry at a time when he was really needing. Uh, to probably um, play play nice, right? He can't even get money to make a sequel to the successful um, Inside Man. That, that movie made a ton of money, and he can't make a sequel to it. Probably the only reason he was able to get the financing and the backing to do do the right thing in the first place is because of the success of She's Got to Have It that he made for like seven hundred thousand dollars, and it went on to to I, worldwide. I think it made over a hundred million. So that's incredible. You know, when people saw that, they wanted to give him another chance to do that again. They didn't realize that he was not going to be, they, they weren't going to be able to control him. I just want to tell you guys that said He had a movie last summer called Red Hook Summer mm-hmm. um, that was widely buzzed about as being sort of a sequel to Do the Right Thing, which was a, a huge disservice to the film because I don't think he ever said himself that it was meant as a sequel to it. It, it, it shares the Mookie character who has a sideline in the film, and it takes place in a different neighborhood in Brooklyn. But otherwise, it has nothing at all really to do with Do the Right Thing. Mm-hmm. And I think people maybe I'll give some critics the benefit of the doubt that they were disappointed that it wasn't. Um, um, but it's a nice little film. It's not perfect. It's it's a little rough around the edges, and it's a. I've only seen it once, so I, I haven't totally resolved the ending of it, which is controversial. But it was widely ignored. Here's one of America's greatest filmmakers, and he he can't buy attention for for his film. It, it makes me sad. Yeah, it makes me sad too. And and by the way, Michael just had to extricate himself from the podcast. He said he's still feeling sick, so he just. I noticed he was being quiet. Yeah. yeah he, he... 
So that's that's why he's so quiet because he's he's taken himself off the podcast. But that's okay. okay. He's feeling nauseous from the Vicodin. I want to. Say, I, I was way off on the, the on the uh, on the earnings of, of she's got to have it. It made it easily made um, a thousand a hundred times more than it cost, but it it only grossed seven million dollars. But it only you know it only costs you know a fraction of that. So so that's the that's the reason he was giving sort of giving the carte blanche to do 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 the right thing. Yeah. Um, I was just going to see how much Sex, Lies, and Videotape made. I remember that movie, my sister and I... 24 million. Oh, 24 million. Wow. Okay. So In this country. I think it made more overseas. Yeah. It's a that really, may really be the movie that I'm thinking about that over, that worldwide maybe grossed 100 million. Yeah. Um, so, you know, do we, we should talk about Crimes and Misdemeanors, what a great movie that is. For some reason, according to Inside Oscar, there was actually backlash against Crimes and Misdemeanors because I think because the guy gets away with it, he gets away with the murder, and he doesn't feel any conscious about it because he's decided he doesn't feel guilty or responsible because he's he's had that debate in his head with his sort of spiritual advisors, and he's decided that it's not really a crime if he decides it's not a crime. If he feels no so guilt or remorse. Yeah, I know, right? Wow. People are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's so strange the things that can bubble up uh, in the in the in the Oscar discussion prior to nominations and, and during the uh, the campaigning that can can bring a a bad word can swell like that and bring a movie down. Yeah, I, I kind of wish that um I'd been blogging this year, 1989, because it really would have been a good year to go after the press. I would have gone after them so hard on Do the Right Thing and, and on Crimes and Misdemeanors both, because they both got really good reviews, and they're, they're to this day, very lasting films, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors is, I think, Woody Allen's best film until you get to Blue Jasmine, although um, Husbands and Wives is very good, too, and Matchpoint has its moments, but... Uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors was really his last complete, brilliant film, and it's kind of bizarre that he didn't get a, a Best Picture nomination for it. The last thing in the world you need is for me to be your biographer. You know, I, mean, I make these these little films on, on yeah. you know toxic yeah. waste yeah. and then starving yeah. children. Yeah, look, look, I'll be frank with you. You're not my first choice. I'm doing it strictly as a favor to Wendy. Because you haven't worked in a long time. She's embarrassed. I've worked. It's just that nobody's paying me. I'm, you know, putting this film... Look, I know you don't respect what I do. I understand that. But, you know, I got a closet full of Emmys. You, you realize that. No, all right, okay. You think that's bullshit. Fine. Okay, fine. I understand. I don't know. Maybe I could use the money to finish my movie, you know? I, I do have some debts and things. That would Idea for farce. A poor, uh, poor loser agrees to do the story of a great man's life and in the process comes to learn deep values. Yeah, I, mean, I guess at some point, you know, the Academy goes through love-hate things with, with directors and, and with styles of movies, and there may have been the perception that he's been awarded and been nominated so many times that we're sort of tired of this thing, even though he kept doing the same thing as well or better than he'd ever done it, they were just sort of tired of it. By You know, it was it was a lot like his previous movies and so they they didn't it was a situation where you if you don't really surpass yourself time after time they think you're just doing the same thing right right um i i don't know when the soon Yi thing happened or if that had anything to do with it um i can't remember when what year that that went down you know i know it was probably right after crimes and misdemeanors it sort of happened but i don't know when it started um when it came out in the press crazy in the press 
but it but it uh, crimes and misdemeanors is features a great role by martin landau as uh, i guess he's an architect or something he's some no he's a surgeon i can't remember what he is he's a big guy he's a big you know muckety muck and upper middle class and he's married and he has this affair with angelica houston who totally goes nuts and in fact scarlett johansson's character in match point is almost word for word angelica houston and crimes and misdemeanors so he has her bumped off by um uh by by the brother by the mob brother and but at the same time as this heavy story is going on there's two other storylines happening there's woody allen kind of wrestling with hypochondria and his belief in god and and all of that makes its own great movie where he you know ends up on um on on a side street uh no, wait, I'm mixing them up. Oh, my God, I'm talking about Hannah and her sisters. Never mind. Forget that. <laughs> he, he in, in Crabs and Misdemeanors, he's falling in love with, with Mia Farrow, and, he's, um, and she's a producer, and he's a documentary filmmaker <laughs> who has a wife who thinks he's a total loser, whose brother is Alan Alda, who plays a, a movie, movie producer who Woody Allen thinks of as a big joke, and he definitely lampooned him. And that's one thing that could be that the, the Oscar voters felt sort of semi-insulted by their depiction of of his depiction of Hollywood as being jack- a bunch of jackasses, you know? It mm-hmm. depends. All right, look, this, uh, this story on the homeless, it's too long. I want five pages out of it. Make sure he gets five real pages out of okay, it. Five. This guy tells the secretary to type it tighter. It doesn't take anything out of it. It's stupid. Yeah. And I want this guy, Joe Hansen, off the show. He's not funny. He doesn't write funny. I'm sick. If he has cancer, I'm sorry. I'll send him flowers. He's not, he's not funny. I don't want him. I don't want him off. Jesus, doesn't anybody know how to write funny anymore? I mean, wait, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to write everything myself? Or write it myself? Direct it myself? produce it myself i can't believe this look at this look at those people out there look at them look out the window at them these people are looking for something funny in their lives they're not getting anything funny you're giving them straight lines their lives are straight lines already they're waiting for something funny This is supposed to be the profile of the creative mind. It's very tough for a woman in this profession. I mean, men are always hitting I can make it easier for you. What is this? What is this? When did you shoot that? When did you get that? I was lurking around the corner. I had my camera and I couldn't resist. I saw you guys. I I don't want to do it in a kind of a vulgar way and just, uh, you know, take it off uh, what I see here. I want to to find out what's in here so I can, you know, spend some time. We have a little dinner together, you know. Okay, you can step aside. I'm taking over this film. What are you talking about? You can't finish my film. I can't read your contract. You promised. Look, the idea was to show the real me. All right, okay, I may not be perfect, but I don't promote values that help... That, that, let me get your quote exactly. That deaden the sensibilities of a great democracy. You're fired, Cliff. You're fired. You're out. Get out of here. Go. Thank you. Goodbye. If it bends, it's funny. If it breaks, it isn't. So. Truth hurts. It, just the fact that you confused it, and I was too. I do the same thing. I confuse it with Hannah and her sisters. They could be like next door neighbors, next door neighbors in the same apartment, in the same apartment building in New York. I think that's what I was trying to say before that people think that well, we've seen him do this before, and we have rewarded him enough for doing the same thing over and over. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, but but in crimes and misdemeanors is sort of great because he talks about cr- there are crimes and there are misdemeanors. You know there are right things you do. Like for instance, when he gets screwed over by well, kind of screwed over, deceived by Mia Farrow, 
you know, that's a bad thing to do to someone. That's hurting, but it's not obviously not on the level of, of murder. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's a great film. It's be- beautifully written, brilliantly acted. It absolutely deserved a Best Picture nomination. And, and even weird even for me is that in the as we've gone through the eighties and the seventies, uh, the Oscars weren't afraid to acknowledge forward-thinking greatness. They didn't always pick the exact right choice for my taste, but they almost always picked a great film that has withstood the test of time. But time and again, as we've gone through the 80s, they've always settled for the lesser film that just doesn't hold up the way that its competition does. There's something that's changed in Oscars and, Mm -hmm. and in society in general that just is afraid of, of, of getting it right. Yeah. It really is pretty pretty um, glaringly obvious in this year. Uh, and, and it's not like it's not like we were all clueless because you read David Anson's review of Do the Right Thing and he nailed it. He was much smarter about that movie, obviously, than I was at the time. He saw what was great about it and he celebrated it and, and thank God he did. And him and Ebert and a few other people. So it's not like there was this widespread cluelessness. Right. But they, there seems to be blinkers on the Oscar voters. What they happened to them, and we saw it, we transitioned through it when we went in the 70s, is they stopped being able to see themselves or the human experience in any kind of way except a positive way. Every one of the best picture things here are you know, nostalgia, other than Born on the Fourth of July. But, you know, that's that's obviously about a hero. They depict the good side of human nature. They depict the best side of human nature. And that, that continues today. There was a brief moment when it was No Country for Old Men and um, The Hurt Locker, although The Hurt Locker, I guess, as you could argue, is, is showing the better side of humanity. But but that was a tiny little respite. Now we're right back again with the Oscar winners. Well, there being, was... The- the brief, the brief moment too in the early to seventies when there was a rebellious nature throughout America. But I, even though I sometimes try to avoid attaching the political climate of America too closely with the Oscars, we have to remember that throughout the eighties we were in the middle of the Reagan era, and in eighty eight. Um, uh, Daddy Bush was elected, so we were in the middle of this deeply conservative era in America that had to have had some effect on people's perceptions about what people want to see at the, at, when they go to the movies. We yeah. were spinning this lie to ourselves about how great America is that entire decade, whereas in the 70s, the, people weren't afraid to look at our flaws and our mistakes and mm-hmm. the, the terrible things that we did. And suddenly in the 80s, those things no longer existed, and it was all about America's the shining city that's, on the hill yes, and blah, blah, exactly. blah. Yeah, that's, that's so right. perceptive, what you say about um, wanting to believe the lie. And it wasn't until the very end of the 80s and going into the 90s that people started to try to poke uh, poke some holes into that deception that people all throughout the 80s had, had been um, fooled into believing. Well, and that's the beautiful thing about Do the Right Thing is Spike Lee is in the middle of that saying, no, wait a minute, mm-hmm. things aren't all great and nice. There's there's cancer, and this is it, and this is what mm-hmm. it looks like. Right. And he was right. And, he, and you're right. It couldn't be more contrasting to what America and Reagan, you know, Reagan's presidency wanted mm-hmm. to say about America. And we were already starting to bully other countries you know, in that weird, unjustifiable way that, that we never used to do back in the World War II days. Mm-hmm. But you know, this, is, this is all the shit that we start doing. This is, this is really when the 1% start um, forming, you know, uh, what do you call it, marshalling their troops to sort of mm-hmm. take over. And you know, with a few you know, Clintons here or there, 
but somehow the Oscars kind of turned into um, this this you know character assessment of humanity uh-huh. like they it stopped being about f- complicated human experience and it started being about pr- putting our best foot forward and looking to the better of our of our culture and our our, our identity and if you look at dead poet society for instance and you know my left foot and you know these are all like humans portrayed in the best possible light Uplifting. uplifting. You would think that uh, you would think that my life would be sort of a downer, but in fact, it's really uplifting. It's very spiritually kind of you know optimistic kind of movie. Yeah. But and, you know, credit to Oliver Stone for for beginning to poke some holes into this uh, illusionary dream with Wall Street, poking holes in the in the uh, financial dream, and with uh, Born on the Fourth of July poking yeah. and Platoon both poking holes in the fantasy that we people were trying to cling to about Vietnam and credit to Soderbergh for finally for poking the hole in the whole yuppie dream thing with with sex lies and videotape but yep yuppie dumb is not is, is not as cool as it as it looks from, um, as it's portrayed to be but also what he what he exposed I think about um, about sexuality and in fact crimes mm-hmm. and misdemeanors you could also say was sort of a truthful look at um, uh, you know Hollywood hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know the, the two producers in that film are portrayed as fairly dishonest people. You know, mm-hmm. kind of out for a buck, power grab. You know, and yeah. it, it's, so it's, we do it's, see directors trying to poke some holes in these dreams, but that's not what the Academy's ready for yet. They're not ready to do that. They no, want to in fact, it's the opposite. Them. They used to be better, better equipped. You know, movie like All About Eve winning Best Picture, and if you look mm-hmm. coming forward, we'll have. The next film is um, Dances with Wolves, which is absolutely that. Oh. And then Silence of the Lambs is a tiny little break from that. You know, Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. isn't dark about human nature. There, There is no question about what's good and what's evil in that film. But at least it's, you know, something darker, something a little more interesting. And then, and then Unforgiven, Clint Eastwood, which I just watched the other day, um, wins in 93. And... Again, that's another movie where it's a clear-cut right and wrong. There's no ambiguity. The heroes win and the um, villains suffer. You know, Another movie from 1989. Talk about no black and white whatsoever when you've got Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade when your villain are the Nazis who are trying to steal the Christian relics. You know, There's no black and white there about who's bad and who's good and you, and America still won, was still wanted to see the heroes they wanted to see Indiana Jones a lot of them did that's why i think batman is is underrated in that in in what tim burton did was really subversive he was able to show the really dark uh, ugly underbelly of america to the entire world and it was a, it was such a huge blockbuster hit it made yeah. how much did it make 250 million dollars Something like that. It was incredibly successful, and he did it subversively because he he was able to sneak it in with humor and entertainment value. But it's a really dark movie. I really like. I like it. the second one better, which Me I think too. is actually more subversive because I love uh, the second one. Catwoman is the hero of that film. That's so great. Mm-hmm. Batman Returns is absolutely my favorite Tim Burton movie. I'd love it. I, I don't mind Batman either. I don't know what happened. I mean, unfortunately, he birthed the whole superhero genre even though when he did it it was funny and weird mm-hmm. it wasn't like it took itself so seriously i'm afraid christopher nolan has to take credit for that <laughs> yeah but you uh, know. even superman um was pretty pretty and would play the human you know lex luthor as as portrayed by gene hackman was was a comic was a comic character right yeah. 
and and I guess um, another comic book movie at the same time, not a superhero movie, but another comic book movie was Dick Tracy, which stylistically has a lot in common with Batman, as as being really broad, cartoonish characters. Right, mm-hmm. right. So it's interesting that the tagline of the Joker and the Nolan Batman is "Why so serious?" because that's that's what I've been asking myself about all the movies, uh, superhero movies in that same mold. Not that there's anything wrong with Nolan doing it the first time, but the fact that they keep trying to recreate that seriousness mm-hmm. is becoming really oppressive to me. It doesn't well, work anymore. It worked with Nolan and it, for The Dark Knight and maybe The Dark Knight Rises, but it just not, it's just not working. I mean, I enjoyed Superman a lot. I did. But, but if they're going to continue down this road, pretty soon people are just going to get tired of it. They're going to think, well, there's no there there. You would think and you wonder where the attitude in the ticket-buying movie-going public is coming from, that they want to see such dark depictions time after time after time. Yeah. I wonder what the mentality of, of the country is and what, uh, and really worldwide when these well, movies I can be like so it's, successful. It's dominated by the, the pandering to the target demo of men who can't grow up and boys mm-hmm. who are... Who are um, and they want it to be taken seriously. It's sort of like they want their porn right. to be serious. They want it to be... They, they mistake darkness for seriousness. And they want their obsessions and what they like to actually be semi-important and not just mm-hmm. dumb, silly, frivolous stuff. Because when they read those comic books, the comic books are always dead serious, you know? One thing I do want to... About the, the difference between the Batman of 1989 and the Batman uh, that, that Nolan created or, or adapted in 2005, one thing that happened between... In, in that era is that Batman of 1989 was based on the Bob Kane Batman and the Batman that Nolan adapted is, is a Frank Miller version which is the comic books themselves were much darker and so the look and the feel and the attitude of the comic book Batman in the 1980s was almost was not far very far removed from what Adam West did on TV yeah. and so the style of the movie and everything is more playful more more um, um, more um, a nudge and a wink kind of thing one more thing about Batman, I just want to say, and then I'll, I'll stop talking about it, but it did win the, the Oscar for um, Best Art Direction and Set Direction that year. Those incredibly ornate, bizarre, gothic sets that Anton First created. Right. And the sad thing about that year is that Anton First, um, two years later, committed suicide. Oh, God. Yeah, he broke up with uh, Beverly Beverly D'Angelo, oh and I God. think it affected him really emotionally, and, and he committed suicide. To, uh, like a year and a half after he got the Oscar, he committed suicide. She must have oh, the man. golden snatch or something, because um, <laughs> <laughs> because Al Pacino like lost his mind after he broke up with her, too. Who did? Al Pacino. Oh, yeah. Wow. yeah. She's the Venus flytrap. <laughs> <laughs> the golden snatch. We should give out the golden stuff. <laughs> that should be a category. <laughs> should be a yearly category at the Oscars. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer Lawrence wins the Golden Snatch Award. That's right. There you go. I can get behind that. All right, we have to talk about Michelle Pfeiffer because um, obviously Daniel Day Lewis won easily, and Brenda Fricker yawned. No, she was fine. She was great. Won in supporting. But um, the real race was down to Best Actress, and, and it's true. You don't not give an award to Jessica Tandy, but it is sort of one of those big bummers that Michelle Pfeiffer had to have her, like, critic, you know, all the critics voted for her. I think she, she did a clean sweep of all the early critics' awards for Fabulous Baker Boys. 
Um, and she's great in it. It's a weird movie. It's dark. You know, it's that's, that's not a movie that is very happy and resolved by the end. It's pretty hard to get through. It's not even much of a guilty pleasure because she, her character is so damaged and sad and the two brothers are damaged and sad. And you know, it prob- I love that movie. I do too. And it pro- I think it deserved a lot more credit than it got. It kind of just was, was about her and her singing and she's great, but it, it's, it's a pretty, it's a pretty hard movie. I mean, it's not, it's sad, you know, it's really sad. But but that was the closest she ever got to winning an Oscar and there was no way she was that Jessica Tandy was not gonna win. You're better than that. You know, I saw you guys once. You and Frank. At the Roosevelt? a cheap date. Soap convention. Soap? Yeah, they got a convention for everything. This guy with some big roller and suds. Lisa was clean. Some of the guys I met did a service. You wouldn't believe. Mm. The older ones, they weren't so bad. Nice. Light. Pulled your chair out for you. But the younger ones. It wasn't so bad. I'd get a nice piece of steak, flowers, sometimes even a gift. Usually whatever the guy was into. Got a set of socket wrenches once. But, you know, she, she her next Oscar nomination and last Oscar nomination was for Love Field, which was, you know... I don't know that I don't movie. think I've ever even heard of that. Yeah. You guys know Love Field? Love Field mm. is um, Michelle Pfeiffer. Uh, it was the 1993 and uh, 1993 Oscars, 1992 film release. And it's it's about a uh, southern woman who wants to go see Jackie Kennedy. And she's on her way, oh, I right. think, to see Jackie Kennedy the day the night that he gets shot and she hooks up with a black uh father with his daughter and they have to drive through the south and and he he gets he gets the word gets out that that a black man and a white woman are driving together and he gets hunted down basically and beaten up and um she gets him in a whole lot of trouble i think he loses his kid or something by the end no he goes to prison he goes to prison for nothing for doing nothing and then the kid has to go in foster care and you know um, i think they have sex Actually, but it uh, looks. It sounds interesting. I want to. I want to seek that out for sure. Yeah. Another movie I want to mention: uh, A Dry White Season. It's not as if the 1989 had any shortage of movies that dealt with race relations. There was Driving Miss Daisy and Do the Right Thing, and Glory, which was, I think, a really fantastic and very pretty accurate historical. Um, movie about the first black regiment in the Civil War, the 54th Regiment, and then there's a movie called A Dry White Season. Um, that was directed by the by a black woman, um, the first major uh, Hollywood film uh, directed um, by a black woman, I think. Wow. And she had previous. She was a, she's from Martinique. She had won a, a César award a couple of years previously in France. And um, a, a Drive White Season. I had never seen it until this week. I wanted to to, to find out what it was all about. And it's about it's an apartheid movie, and um, uh, Donald Sutherland and. Um, 
Janet Sussman are a couple uh, whose gardener, uh, his son, is, is murdered by the uh, police force in South Africa. It's and, and Marlon Brando was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for this movie. Right, and, and I'm glad you brought up apartheid because that is one thing we, we haven't brought up in our discussion to do the right thing is that that was a po the apartheid and that is actually see that moment in history is shown in the Butler when Reagan mm -hmm. you know decides not to uh, do you know have sanctions against South Africa for apartheid right. and mm -hmm. that was a huge movement and that in do the right thing he shouts apartheid. Uh, right. right. Uh huh. Yeah. The, the, so there were there were there were movies in the late '80s that really tried to address that. Some pretty good ones, you know. And so, and yeah. it is it's interesting because there's a little bit of an overlap with this year with the Mandela movie that Idris Elba's in. Right. And we should also give a shout out to Mr. Denzel Washington, who won his first Oscar, right, for supporting mm -hmm. actor that year. Uh, for glory, and also to point out, and I know we've said it all, but the fact that only one actor was nominated from Do the Right Thing of an incredibly diverse, brilliant, wonderful cast, including Ruby Dee and Ozzie Davis, Danny Aiello, a white character. <laughs> it's white like, guy. come on, Academy, really? Oh, no. no offense to him because he's great in the he's movie. Great. To he's not, great. To not nominate Ossie Davis and, and Ruby D is terrible. I know. And Rosie Perez. I mean, yeah. you would think that Rosie Perez would be right up the Academy's alley. She's great. Yeah. She just yeah. jumps off the screen. I mean, yeah. she it was, really it was her first movie, I think, right? Pretty sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's weird that, yeah, he discovered her, I think. He's, mm -hmm. he's credited as discovering her. So many, so many people from that movie went on to have fantastic careers, and that's one thing we, that Spike Lee deserves credit for is not only um, um, somehow managing to wrangle his own career, but 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 um, jumpstarting the career of so many other people. Uh, his cinematographer for Do the Right Thing, um, what's his name, Ernest Dickerson. Uh, um, went on to become a director in his own right. He's directed um, half a dozen episodes of Treme on HBO. He directed several episodes of The Wire for HBO. Wow. So his, yeah, and, and Ernest Dickerson and Spike Lee went, were in school together at NYU. Spike Lee says they were the only two black students at NYU no at the kidding. time. No kidding. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Mm. Oh, that's incredible. Well, the cinematography in Do the Right Thing is so beautiful. It should have been nominated. It's, of course, typical Academy that they wouldn't, but that is a lush, beautiful movie. Mm. And, you know, um, let's see, who was nominated for cinematography that year? Glory won. The Abyss, Blaze, but that was Haxel, Haskell Wexler. I guess he's famous. The mm -hmm. famous ones always get in. Fabulous mm -hmm. Baker, Boys and Born on the Fourth of July. There was one really glaring omission, um, a movie that everybody said should have gotten a um, cinematography nomination that didn't, and I can't remember which one it was, but they, they were all horrified that um, Fabulous mm. Baker Boys got in instead, but... Um, Adventures of Baron Munchausen was also this year, incidentally. So was Cameron Crowe's Say Anything, which was a big cultural moment for me, especially because it was filmed in Seattle. Wow, that was so Heather's and Say Anything in the same year. Yeah. God, the kid, as, as far as foreign films go, there was the Decalogue, Kozlowski, and uh, um, Fantastic Cinema in Paradiso was in 1989. Mm. Another Miramax film that Harvey Weinstein um, cut an hour out of, in order to, in, when he brought it to America, he, he he cut an entire hour out of Cinema in Paradiso. Oh God! Well, I, we can't go on much longer because I've actually got to go now. But um, okay. I have to leave in a half hour. But I just wanted to say as a last thing that um, that about the uh, Grandmaster. 
That the only thing that bugs me about that is I understand why people are mad that he's cut the Grandmaster, but the thing is, the only person who pays the price for that is the director of the Grandmaster because not as many people are going to buy tickets. You know, right? Because a lot of people are going to be turned off by that. Although I can't imagine anyone would be so turned off that they would not want to see it at all because you still get you still get ninety percent or ninety five percent of the Grandmaster. Yeah. Would you rather see none of it instead of instead of and most of it? That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, and, I don't get that and, either. Um, yeah. But I, that's all I wanted to say was that I, it's annoying that it's been cut. But on the other hand, I don't think people should like critics should get so uppity and, and annoyed that they won't that they won't recommend people go see the movie. Right, and it's sure. not as if we won't ever get to see the full version because that, that's what director's cuts on Blu-ray are for. Yeah. Well, anyway, all right, you guys. It was wonderful talking with you as usual. Yeah. Say, tell Marco we hope he feels better. I will. I will. <laughs> And uh, have a nice night. Okay, you, you too. too. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to episode 42 of Oscar Podcast with Ryan Adams and Sasha Stone from AwardsDaily.com and Craig Kennedy from LivingInCinema.com, briefly joined by Michael Gray. And we can follow us on Twitter at Oscar Podcast, and we will be back next week, hopefully, with a dispatch from the Telluride Film Festival, where I will be headed tomorrow.